Brad Head. Thank you, Marty. Fellow students, if you would turn to Ezra, E-Z-R-A, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, it's right after 2 Chronicles. Uh, we're going to only spend two weeks in Esther, I mean Ezra, two weeks, and then we're going to get into the minor prophets um, for about 12 weeks, Lord willing. So that's kind of where we're going. The book of Ezra was really written uh, to record the fulfillment of God's promise to bring Israel back to her land after 70 years of captivity. That's really the purpose of the book. Now, Ezra was a scribe, and when you read Ezra, you find out he was also a descendant of Aaron, the high priest. He wrote this book probably between 456 and 444 B.C., somewhere in that neck of the woods. When we were in Esther, remember, Esther took place roughly between about 485 to 475. So Ezra wrote this book after the book of Esther, but the bulk of this book occurs before the book of Esther. So we'll walk through that at that point in time so you get an idea. Remember that Israel was invaded three different times. 605 B.C., 597 B.C., 586 B.C. So there were three separate invasions of the land of Israel. And the last invasion, Ezra carried, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar carried them all off into captivity, uh, the entire population, and burned, Bab uh, burned uh, Jerusalem and took them into exile. Now, Babylon's about 500 miles east of Jerusalem as the crow flies. Now, you don't fly over the Saudi desert, right? You turn into beef jerky if you do that, or human jerky. It's really, really hot. So you've got to follow the crescent, fertile crescent, the rivers, Tigris, Euphrates, etc. It's about a 900-mile trip. It takes about four months because back then they didn't have jet blue, you know, didn't have your hybrids. They had good sandals. And that was it, Birkenstocks. I mean, you, you were going to walk the trip at that point in time. So the book of Ezra very neatly divides itself into two sections, two sections. The first six chapters cover about a 23-year period of time. The first six chapters cover about 23 years. Remember that in October of 539, Persia conquered Babylon. This book begins one year after that, actually a little bit less, in 538 B.C., and King Cyrus issues an edict that permits the Jews to go back to their homeland and rebuild the nation. This was the first return of the Jews back to their homeland at that point in time. And they completed, when they got there in about 538, it took them about 23 years to rebuild the temple. They finally got that done at 515 BC. The second half of this book, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, record the history of Ezra coming back to the land himself for the second return. And that happened at about 458 BC. So the first returns in 538, they finished the temple in 515, and way back down the road in 457, about 57 years later, the second group comes back. So when you read this, you think, wow, this doesn't look very sequential. You're right. Between chapter 6 and chapter 7, there's 57 years. Heck, some of you aren't even 57 years old. You just look like it. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I knew, I, you know, you guys were getting pretty serious on me here, you know, in terms of... Uh... So the focus of this book is that there's two parts. Chapters 1 through 6 focus on rebuilding the temple. Rebuilding the physical temple. That's the first half of the book. 
the second half of the book, chapter 7 through 10, focus on the revival of the people and their relationship with God, to obey God and the covenant and worship Him alone. So here's our key idea for today. Like Israel, you can experience a new beginning with God. This entire book chronicles Israel's new beginning with God, and you too can experience a new beginning with God. We're going to talk about that. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Remember, one of the key themes we learned from the book of Esther is that God is always working. And he generally works behind the scenes, right? Generally, he works backstage. We usually don't see God's hand visibly working. And you know what we do? We ascribe it to something else. We go, well, it was just chance. Well, it just happened. No, God's busy working. We just don't see him work. When you read this chapter, you think to yourself, it seems that the only reason the Jews are going back home is because there was an imperial edict from the king, right? King Cyrus, politically speaking, wanted a whole series of strong, loyal buffer states around the Persian Empire to protect his borders. You know who else has that geopolitical philosophy? Russia. Russia has had the buffer state concept for decades, centuries even. That's why you had Czechoslovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, Albania. These were all buffer states around Russia proper to protect it. Cyrus was doing the same thing. The reality is, is Israel was going back home, not because of Cyrus, but because God made a promise to Israel about 900 years before. Right? Here's the principle. God uses predictive prophecy to authenticate his word and build your faith. Here's what that means. God predicts the future in advance and then makes it happen exactly as he had predicted so that everyone will know what? He is God and he alone is God. In 1405 BC, almost 900 years before this book was written, God had made a promise to Israel, and here's what he told them. Deuteronomy 28.58. Deuteronomy 28.58. If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in the book to fear the name of the Lord your God, verse 64, here's what I'm going to do. I will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. So, Israel, if you sin and you don't obey my law, I'm going to take you out of the land that I'm now giving you. He told them that in 1405 B.C., before they even got into the land. He told them, if you sin, here's what's going to happen. Now, does God always keep his word? He keeps his word to discipline us too, right? He keeps his word to discipline Israel. And, of course, in 586, they were all taken into Babylon into captivity. Did they know how long the captivity was going to last before it happened? No. Yeah, they did. Jeremiah 29, write it down. Jeremiah 29, 10. God told Jeremiah before the captivity exactly how long it was going to last. He said, I'm taking you into captivity. I'm exiling you off the land and you're going to be gone for how long? 70 years. Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon... 
I will visit you and fulfill my good word to bring you back into the land. One of life's mysteries is that God uses wicked people to accomplish his purposes. And when you look around the planet today, you go, man, God's got some work to do because there is a lot of wicked people in positions of power, right? I mean, you look at that and it kind of shake your head. Babylon was a pagan, wicked, evil empire, and God used them to take Israel off the land, to remove them from the land. Cyrus is the king of a pagan, wicked empire, and God uses him to reinstate Israel back into the land. So one of the things that I think is a practical application, it is so easy for us to be either elated or dejected depending on who got elected. I didn't even mean that to rhyme, and it did. <laughs> right? If, if someone who you agree with is in a position of power, we tend to go, wow, at least somebody sane is running the show. You know something? Who's in Washington is not in charge. That should give you great comfort, right? It should give, seriously, it should give you great comfort. Humans at best should be very suspect with power. Any human, I don't care if they're a godly person, you still, should, they should be suspect under positions of power. It's human nature. So it's important to realize God used Babylon to take his people out of the land, he used Persia to bring them back, and he can even use this Congress to accomplish his purposes. Amen. And your job and my job is to pray for those people. Because it's terribly easy for us to go, if I was there, I would do... Really? I don't think you and I have any clue the kind of pressure those people are under. Most of us are not doing a superb job of managing our own life. I would suggest that managing a nation is a lot more difficult. Anyway, that was all for free, folks. 150 years before Cyrus issued this decree, God had spoken of this through Isaiah. Now, this is all back to the theme that God uses predictive prophecy to authenticate his word. The three things I've told you all relate to God is telling the future in advance. So when it comes true, you will say, he is God. Write this down, Isaiah 44, 28. Isaiah 44, 28. This is 150 years before Cyrus issued the decree. God told Isaiah the following. It is I, God, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. So God states the timeline of Israel's captivity in advance, 70 years through Jeremiah. 150 years before Cyrus, God announces by name the ruler that is going to free the Jews to go back and rebuild their temple. Do you think that had an impact on Cyrus? Made a big impact on Cyrus. Cyrus uses the expression, the God of heaven. That phrase, the God of heaven, shows up nine times in this book. Nine times. When it says the God of heaven, the meaning is God is in heaven, God rules over heaven, God made heaven, and he is in charge of everything, including Cyrus. Including you and me, yes? Okay. So here's the, I'm going to go back to it again. God predicts the future in advance 
makes it happen exactly as he predicted so that we will know that he alone is God. And he does that to build our faith because there are times we look at circumstances and we go, God is on a vacation to Aruba because he ain't present in my life. He's very much present in your life. He just has a plan that doesn't agree with your plan, right? And his timing doesn't agree with your timing. Is he smarter than you? Some of you are not so sure about that, are you? <laughs> Since he is, you can trust him. Verse 3. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. This is Cyrus talking. Now the king, he's making this edict. Let him go up to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. When you read this return of the Jews to Israel from Babylon, it reminds you of Exodus. Mm -hmm. This is the second return of the Jews to the homeland, and they were enslaved in Egypt, right? Yes. For 400 years. They were enslaved in Babylon, right? For 70 years. This is the second Exodus. They are now going back to the land for the second time. They had rebelled against God for centuries. That's why they lost their freedom as a result. Now God is giving them a second chance. What's our theme? A new beginning. The entire nation now has a new beginning to start over with God as a result of God's mercy and their sin. We all need new beginnings, right? Why do we need new beginnings? Because we screw up. Have any of you screwed up this morning so far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some in this room may have drifted away from God, and some in this room are running away from God. I have done both. And I can do both any day you talk to me. That's the nature of the human heart. Don't ever say, I would never do that. Never, ever say, I would never do that. That means you're about ready to do that. All right? <laughs> So God is the God of the new beginning. I want you to jump from chapter 1 to chapter 2, the very end of chapter 2, and go to verse 68. Chapter 2, verse 68 and 69. Because what they've given us is a complete list of names, the folks that were making the journey, and I'm not going to go through all those. We only have two weeks for the book. Chapter 2, 68. And some of the heads of the father's households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, what did they do? says they made offerings for what? The for the house of God in order to restore. Sounds like a new beginning. They're going to rebuild the temple, right? Verse 69, according to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work. Here's the principle. Love is expressed through... What's it say on the board? I know my handwriting's bad. What's Rob got on the screen? Love is expressed through... Just make sure you guys can read, right? That's what, That's what Valentine's Day is all about, right? Uh, now, yesterday was Valentine's Day, yes? Whoa. <laughs> Some of you were not, couldn't quite figure out why your spouse was really unhappy today. That's like missing anniversary, right? If you say you love your Valentine, but you're not willing to give anything up for your Valentine, you could be sued for false advertising. Now, let's talk about the Jews 
pursuing their love of God, what did it cost them to do this? Because in between chapter 1, the proclamation of Cyrus, and chapter 2, verse 69, there's about 900 miles of desert. There's four months of hard traveling. Only about 50,000 Jews made the trek back to Jerusalem. The uh, two or three million of them stayed back in Persia. We learned about them during the book of Esther. Comfort and convenience and just lots of reasons. It's intriguing to me that, you know, I, I first read this and I thought, only 50,000 made the journey back. You know, for most of them, Persia's all they'd ever known. They were born and raised in Persia, <coughs> right? Four generations had been born and raised in Persia. You have, we have people immigrate to the United States on an ongoing basis. If you've been here for four generations, how much do you know about your home country? My grandparents were born here. My great-grandparents were born in Holland. I've been to Holland, but you, could I tell you all about the family homestead and blah, blah, blah? Mm, no. Would I consider Holland my home? I'm going to go back home. Are you kidding? There's 16 million people on a postage-sized lug box. I mean, it's a tight place. You know, this is home. The Jews felt the same way at that point in time. God had told them to go back, and 50,000 of them were faithful to go back. By the way, it was pretty dangerous to go back. And it was very inconvenient, because when you got back to Jerusalem, there was no Marriott. There wasn't even a Hampton Inn. There wasn't even Motel 6, right? All you saw were cities that were piles of rubble. Literally, torn down to the ground. You saw farm ground that was overgrown, neglected. And the land had a bunch of hostile people that didn't want you back on their turf. There's a price tag. It's interesting that the first thing mentioned when they get back in the land is the temple. And the first corporate action mentioned is an offering to God, thanking him for a safe journey. And the offering is to rebuild the temple because that's the place where they met God. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now when the seventh month came, and the sons of Israel were in their cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Now there's some names here, I'm going to say, you probably wouldn't name your child this, Jeshua the son of Josadak, and his brothers the priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the book of Moses, the man of God. When they say the seventh month, that's September, October of 537. Now Jeshua is the high priest, so he's the religious leader, Zerubbabel is the political leader. And what does it say about these two guys? How did they think? As one. As one. We had church and state now united in the goal, and they agreed that the number one goal was to do what? Rebuild the temple. Rebuild the temple. And it was actually to rebuild the altar. Why was the altar such a big deal to these people? What happened at the altar? And what was the purpose of sacrifice? Forgiveness. And what was the purpose of forgiveness? Relationship with God. Relationship with God. Exodus 29.43. You can write this down. Exodus 29.43. God told Israel in Exodus 29.43, I will meet you there at the altar with the sons of Israel. And the altar will be consecrated by my glory. The altar was the place where God met with these people. So their number one priority back in the land is their relationship with God. 
And of course, that begs the question for us, is relationship with God our number one priority in life? Does it even make the top three? And I know you can say yes very easy, but if we measured it in your life, and by the way, here's one way to measure your relationship with God. How are you doing at obedience? John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. <clears throat> Luke 6, 46, he chastised his quote, followers, he said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then don't do what I say? You know, we don't have an equal relationship with God, right? Who's the one that dictates the terms of the relationship? He does. You want a relationship with God? You come on his terms, not your terms. By the way, you'll notice they didn't take a vote saying, let's decide, how are we going to build this altar? What kind of music do you want? You want electric bass? Do you want some rap? I mean, what do you, how do you want to do worship here? There was, no, there was no conversation about this, right? You know why they didn't have to have a conversation? God already told them. He said, here's how I want you to build the altar. The only relevant question for this group at this point in time is, what does God's word say? What's God's word say? That's what we're going to do, and that's what they did. Verse 3. I'm in chapter... 2 verse 3, or chapter 3 verse 3. So, they set up the altar on its foundations. Why were they so eager to get the altar up? There was a couple of reasons. What does it say? In verse 3. They were what? They were terrified. They were wet in their pants because of the peoples of the lands. They were surrounded by enemies, and they offered burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord morning and evening. The altar was the place where Israel offered sacrifice for their sins, and the altar was the place where God met them in forgiveness. Now, follow this logic. No altar, no sacrifice, right? No sacrifice, no forgiveness. No forgiveness from God, no relationship with God. You cannot have a relationship with God unless you're forgiven because we're all sinners. What's our altar today? The cross. The cross. Jesus on the cross. That's our altar. Here's the principle. New beginnings with God always begin at the foot of the cross. Our sins separate us from God, and our sins have to be dealt with. Jesus is a sacrifice for our sins, right? He paid the price tag for our sins so we can be reconciled to God so we don't have to pay for them ourselves. The cross is the only place where God meets us for forgiveness. How many of you think you need forgiveness? Rather regularly, because we screw up, right? If we say we have no sins, we are a liar, right? So all of us need to come back to the cross, how often? Daily, 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 because we need forgiveness. And you know the next part of that equation is, because Jesus forgave you, you are to forgive others, especially your valentine. Because they're the ones that are going to break your heart and make you mad more than anybody else. That's true. No, that never happened. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what she says, bud. 
It says they were terrified. They needed God's help because they were surrounded by enemies. You know, you don't have to persuade me very much to come to God for help when I'm scared. Right? Some of us have enough pain in our life because God knows that's the way to keep us close to him. I wish I didn't have to say that about me, but that is true. That is very true. How many of you are at the 8 o'clock service? You need to go at 11. No matter what you do, cancel what you got to cancel. Go to the 11 o'clock service. Go to that service. Verse 4. They celebrated the Feast of Booths as it is written, verse 10. And when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, what did they do in verse 11? After they laid the foundation in verse 10, what did they do? They sang, they praised, they gave thanks to the Lord. And what did they say? For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So they were obedient <clears throat> in setting up the foundation. You know what happens when you're obedient to God? You are now free to worship him. Scripture says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, that means if I've got sin in my life and I know I've got it, and I'm not willing to let God deal with it, I'm harboring it. I'm sinning and I like my sin and I don't want God to deal with it. You know what it says? God's hearing aid battery just went dead. He said, the Lord will not hear. If you want the Lord to hear, where do you go? The foot of the cross, right? And you ask for what? Forgiveness, because we need it. He's always available. He's waiting at the foot of the cross all the time, all the time, all the time. Now, they've laid this foundation, and they're having a great celebration, and verse 12 tells us we got some generational issues, right? Go to verse 12. It says, Yet many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's households, the old men, that is not us, Marty, but we're close. We're close. Who had seen the first temple. Now, they'd been out of the land for 70 years, so these guys were old. Yeah, older than me, right? 85 plus, probably. It says they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the house was laid, <clears throat> while many others shouted for joy, so that the people could not distinguish between the sound, shout of joy from the sound of weeping. What were they sad about? They knew the glory of the old temple. Say it loud. Hmm? Say it louder so people can hear. They knew about the glory of the old temple. The old temple was built by? David. David and his son Solomon. And it was the glorious temple. You think this temple was as big? No. Not anywhere near. They just saw the foundation and they went, the foundation is dinky compared to the other one. And so they were, the old guys were looking back and going, the good old days were better than today. How many of us are guilty of the good old days syndrome? The older we get, the more we do it. Do you know why the good old days are so good, people? <laughs> Barry said, because we can't remember very well. Now, some of that's true. I'll tell you why the good old days were wonderful. We were kids. 90% of the stuff going on in the world didn't bother us. I remember in 1963, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, and man, we're under desks, and they're doing bus evacuation drills. I'm thinking, cool, I get to go home early. 
I never thought, well, there could be nukes coming over from Cuba. I mean, it's not something you think about when you're, what, eight years old or whatever it was. So most of the good old days, we don't remember because we were children. Now we look and we go, whoa, your grandchildren today are going, life's pretty good for the most part, you know. They were sad because of the past. Here's the principle. Don't let the regrets of your past drown out the promises of God for your future. Now, you can all write that one down because we all have regrets, lots of them. Don't let the regrets of the past drown out the promises of God for the future. So we have a generational difference here. The younger generation is looking forward to what the temple represents for them, and the old generation is going, man, the other one was a lot better. It just fries me when people go, when I was a kid, I walked uphill to school both ways in the snow, barefooted, you know, starving, no jacket. We didn't have a you-know-what to you-know-what in or a window to throw it out of, and they're going on and on and on. You know something? I talked to a woman this last couple of weeks who was married to a meth addict in this county, and she used to go pick up sticks so she could get her food cooked in the fireplace because there was no power and no light for six months. And I thought, you know something? I have no problems. And by the way, my childhood wasn't that bad. Okay? Just some perspective, right? So, don't let the regrets of the past. You know what you do with the regrets of the past? Where do you bring them? To the foot of the cross. That's where new beginnings come from. Forgiveness. Restoration. Chapter 4, verse 1. It sounds like they're making really good progress. They've come back to the land. They've gone through 900 miles of desert, lots of trials. They're starting to rebuild things. They've got the foundation of the temple built. Man, they got momentum and tailwind. And what happens in chapter 4, verse 1? Opposition shows up. Amazing. Yeah, something bad, yeah. Verse 4-1. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building the temple of the Lord God in Israel. Have you ever noticed that when every, something, everything is going good, there's usually potholes on that freeway? Like major potholes, right? Wherever there's spiritual progress, there's going to be spiritual opposition. Wherever there's opportunity, there's going to be opposition. Here's the principle, or the, the, the underlying. Satan will never relinquish territory without a battle. Never. When Adam and Eve sinned, they forfeited the governorship of the earth to someone named Lucifer. And Jesus commanded, by the way, in Mark 16, 15. You know what he said? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You know what that is? That's a command to invade enemy territory. Go and bring good news that sets the captives free. Who's keeping them enslaved? Do you think he wants his captives free? No. You're going to get a little enemy here. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus just doesn't tell you to invade the turf. He's telling you to not only invade Satan's territory, he's telling you to recruit Satan's captives. And bring them out of bondage into freedom. That's the freedom Jesus will give them. Do you think Satan's very high on that? He views that as high treason, right? He's going to fight to the death to hold the people he's got in bondage in bondage. 
Satan doesn't want God's people back in the land building the temple because that's his turf now. God's back, taking the turf back through Israel. See, one of the things that, if you don't understand the spiritual dimension over the top of this, you look at it and you just see it from a human standpoint and you go, yada, 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 yada. When you really understand the spiritual dynamic, you understand why things are happening and how they're happening at that point. So the followers of Satan in this country want to stop the temple. And here's how they're going to do it. Go to verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. They're going to attempt to stop the building of the temple by offering to help build it. And you look and you go, whoa. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what's called a subtle invasion. Verse 2. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's household and said, let us build with you, right? For we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, and king of Assyria, who brought us here. Here's the principle. Some of you are going to swallow three times on this one, but I'm telling you, write it down. Here's the principle. Avoid any cooperation that causes you to compromise your commitment to Christ. I love C's. Avoid any cooperation that causes you to compromise your commitment to Christ. This offer to help sounds like cooperation, right? And we're going to help you build. Sounds helpful. You know, we'll build with you. Many hands make light work. We can get this thing done quicker. Here's the problems. The Samaritans, the people of the land, did not worship the God of Israel as the only true God. They worshiped him as one of many gods. He was one of many gods. They worshiped a lot of different gods. Scripture commands us, God says, don't be what? Unequally yoked. Now, that means a lot of things, but we're going to talk about that. Christians are forbidden to marry non-Christians because you are serving two different gods. There's an old Jewish proverb. Stuart will know this one. A fish and a bird can fall in love, but where will they make their home? <laughs> yeah, kind of interesting, you know. The principle came unequally yoked. You never yoked a donkey with an oxen. Right? You never put a donkey next to an ox and said, pull a plow. Why would you not do that? Who's doing all the work? The oxen's doing all the work. The donkey's not doing the work. Now, if the oxen decides to go left, where's the donkey going to go? The donkey's going to go left, right? The oxen outweighs the donkey about three to one, maybe four to one. So we said you never put a yoke together that are not equally matched. That's the principle that's why you marry only Christians if you're a Christian at that point in time. If the Jews here had agreed to this compromise, you know what the consequence would have been? They'd have been worshiping idols again in a matter of months. <coughs> Their history was every time they got involved with people that weren't followers of God, who got lost? They got pulled by the oxen off track and away from the Lord at that point in time. That's exactly what led to their captivity 70 years before. Exactly. Bad company corrupts, Bad company corrupts good morals. It's absolutely true. I don't know how Marin said yes to me. My goodness. Grace. <laughs> yeah, I know. Grace. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, she says so too. God is not saying you can't have relationships with unbelievers. He says, don't yoke yourself together with someone who's going in a different spiritual direction because they will drag you off course. Okay? Now, 
Having said that, I have friends, lots of them, where one spouse is a believer and one spouse is not a believer. And the marriage is working. Do you know how it works? Because the Christian does all the sacrificing and all the flexibility and all the adjustments so that you can go along without fighting each other. And I know people say, well, we're in love. Love will cover that. I said for a couple of weeks. But then it's, you know, what about where if you're not going in the same direction, you know something, you will ultimately divide. You got to agree. Verse 3. Zerubbabel, how do they respond to this? They've got this offer to help. By the way, not all offers of help are good offers. Mm -hmm. Ever notice that? Sometimes when you have well-meaning friends that want to help or in-laws that want to help, you should say thank you, but no thank you, right? Verse 3. They said, you have nothing in common with us in building the house to our God, but we ourselves will build the house of the Lord as King Cyrus, king of Persia, has commanded us. So you don't want to get distracted. Keep the main thing the main thing. Now, verse 4. This offer to help now shows up for what it really is, right? When they said, no thanks, we're going to do it ourselves, it says the people of the land did what? Discourage the people of Judah and trite, frightened, or troubled them from building. And in verse 5, they did what? Bribed the counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now their true colors show up. You say, did you really want to help? I didn't think so, right? They didn't want the temple rebuilt. Now think about it from the standpoint of the people of the land. The Jews have just shown up. They want to rebuild the temple. Why would you not want them to rebuild the temple? When you build a temple and you start worshiping God, what's going to happen? Once you get right with God, God's power is at work. If you're, a, if you're in opposition to God, do you want God's people to be strong or weak? Weak. You want them weak. You know the other problem? When you build a temple and God starts blessing you, who's going to show up? More of God's people from Persia. And when they show up, they take turf. When they take turf, you got less. All right? So this would diminish their power. So they've got a vested interest in stopping this temple. So they discourage them with opposition. They frighten them. And they even, you will be shocked, they hire political lobbyists to influence government officials to stop the work. Can you imagine that? Hiring political lobbyists. They change the zoning laws. They require environmental impact reports. I mean, you know, I mean, they're, they're busy. That's what he's saying. Same thing. They had, they had lobbyists in Persia doing business and going, hey, stop these people over here. You're going to find out in a couple chapters it worked. As a matter of fact, it was so successful that they stopped building. Go to verse 24. Verse 6. Go ahead. Where it says and that they, all the way through King Cyrus, the king of Persia, then Darius, king of Persia, and then the reign of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. They wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah. That's the accusation that we just studied. Yep. And if you read, keep, keep working on and go down to chapter 4, verse 21. 
the king of Persia gets a letter from the opposition, and the opposition says, King of Persia, if you let the Jews rebuild this temple, they're going to stop paying taxes. Whoa, you interfere with my tax revenue, <laughs> you're done. Verse 21, the king of Persia says, by the way, Cyrus is dead. This is a kid. So now, issue a decree to make these men stop work that the city may not rebuild until a decree is issued by me. Verse 24, chapter 4, 24. Then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem, what? Ceased. Ceased. And it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So, from 536 until 520, there's nothing. 16 years, there's no building. Now, they stopped building because they feared the people of the land to start with. And number two, they got ordered to stop the building. Now, you see this today all over the place. How many of you know people that have begun well with the Lord? And they're longer here. You saw them, man, they're lit up, they're on fire, they're going to go and do, man, they're going to serve Jesus, they're going to make a difference. They started the ministry, and as soon as it gets difficult or inconvenient or interferes with my beauty rest on Sunday morning. Yeah, it won't help, by the way. A couple hours of sleep on Sunday morning is not going to help. <laughs> what is it, aging athlete syndrome that Pastor Roger talked about today? They turn out quitting. They turn out quitting at that point. So we had 16 years of nothing. Go to chapter 5, verse 1. When the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then verse 2 tells us that the leadership of Judah arose and began to rebuild the house of God again, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were supporting them. God was not going to let his house remain abandoned, so he sent prophets to do what? Tell them to get off their backside, right? God sends truth to us on a regular basis, does he not? Yes. How do you respond when you hear truth? No, 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 no. Some people do. Some people say, Lord, teach me because I want to be obedient. Open my ears so that I will respond to that. It took them 16 years. 16 years. That's a long time to be disobedient, yeah? Some of us have been there. Some of us have been there. It took me seven years, and I'm extra stupid. But to their credit, in verse 2, they started building the house of the Lord again. You know what the cure for dis discouragement is? Obedience. obedience. Yeah, Holly's right. The cure for discouragement is obedience. God is the God of new beginnings, and after a 16-year period of disobedience, they got with the program again and started rebuilding. God encouraged them. Now, if you go to chapter 6, verse 1, King Darius issues a decree, king of Persia, and he says... In verse 6, chapter 6, verse 6. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the provinces, Shelther Bozenai, that sounds like a bad Friday night medication problem, and your colleagues, the officials of the provinces, this, the governors, keep away from the temple. Verse 7. Leave this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on its site. 
Jump down to verse 14. It says, the elders of the Jews were successful in building. How were they successful? What's the next phrase say? Through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they finished building according to what? According to the command of God in Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, so the three kings of Persia. What's verse 15 say? And the temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. That is 515 B.C. How long have they been in the land? 23 years. There was 16 years of nothing. When they picked up the, started doing it again, it took them five years to complete it. We live in a pretty instant culture. You know, if it doesn't happen by this afternoon, it takes too long, Right? We want instant everything. God works for eternity. He doesn't work on a microwave mentality. But God uses human rulers to accomplish his purposes. It tells you that there are three kings involved, and God used every one of them. Do you think they were all wise and benevolent, God-fearing presidents? No. no, they weren't. They were self-centered God-haters, and God used them anyway. Right? It says they were successful in building. Here's the principle. You succeed in completing God's work when you obey God's word. You succeed in completing God's work when you obey God's word. Now, it's very important we understand some things. It says they were successful in building according to the command of God. Right? Whose work are you doing? Does it say you will be successful in completing your work when you obey your word? Does it say you'll be successful in completing your work when you obey your spouse's word? It says you need to be occupied at the right task. It's God's work that we're supposed to be doing. It's not our work. And if you want to do God's work, where has he told you how to do the work? He's written it down. You know what this implies? That we're actually reading what he said, right? How can, you cannot obey what you do not know, fair? That's one of the reasons why we are very big in this class on open the book, right? Find out what God has to say. He does have an opinion. By the way, that opinion is the law of the universe because his word will never pass away at that point. So let's review our key ideas. How many of you know people that need a new beginning? Are you praying for that new beginning in their life? How many of us need a new beginning? Are we willing to have God start anew in our life? You go to the foot of the cross for that, folks. God uses predictive prophecy. By the way, there are hundreds of predictive prophecies in Scripture where he says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And he tells you centuries beforehand, and then he does it. So that your faith will be strengthened, that he alone is God. Love is expressed through giving. This operates not just with humans. Here would be an interesting question. How would God know that you love him?
So how would you rate your love for God based on your obedience quotient? It's a pretty good measuring stick. I don't like it. I don't like it at all because it's very convicting. It's much easier to tell somebody you love them, right? What do we say? Talk is cheap. Obedience is expensive because it involves submission to the will of God. Love and action. New beginnings with God always begin at the foot of the cross, and they always begin with forgiveness and our repentance, which means, God, I've screwed up, I'm coming back, and I'm asking you to forgive me and begin anew. And we do that because our next point is we all have regrets of the past. Here's the problem. If we don't begin anew with God, we are controlled by the regrets of the past. How many of you know people are in that situation? Very, very, very easy to let the past be in charge instead of Jesus be in charge. I have talked to people for years who said, well, I know Jesus forgives me, but I can't forgive me. I'm going, oh, your opinion is more important than his? If God himself forgives you, what makes you think your opinion is so bloody important? Pardon me, I shouldn't talk that way. What makes you think your opinion is so important, right? That your opinion of you trumps God's opinion of you. Who? Pardon? Yeah. The Apostle Paul. Who are you going to believe? I recommend you take his word. Avoid cooperation that causes you to compromise your commitment to Christ. Satan will try and compromise you. Satan will always try and compromise you. Be on the alert. And lastly, you will succeed in completing God's work when you obey His Word, and that presupposes that you know what His Word says, which means you need to open the book. All right? Are we tracking? Next week, we're going to finish the book. So be reading ahead. Ezra 7 through 10. There's some more points of obedience. Yes? So now that you know... Do...